Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. That is, of course, The Prelude to Lohengrin by Richard Wagner, performed by the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Seiji Ozawa. My guest today, Alex Ross, is the author of Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music, about the life and work of German composer Richard Wagner. Alex Ross has been the music critic at The New Yorker since 1996 and at The New York Times before that. While his beat is classical music, he writes on a wide-ranging number of subjects, from opera to avant-garde, Kurt Cobain to Bob Dylan, all alongside essays on history, art, film, and literature. He's a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, cited by the Foundation for his ability to offer, quote, new ways of thinking about the music of the past and its place in our future, unquote. With his deep knowledge of music history, I wanted to know how Alex Ross saw popular music fitting into the pantheon of culture against past illustrious genres. Well, I think there is kind of a natural life cycle with genres as they unfold over time, that eventually their their past can begin to overshadow their present. You know, if you, if you look at the history of jazz, you know, and the emergence of this jazz classicism in recent decades, where, you know, kids go to music schools and, and, and study jazz and sort of learn how to play Ellington the same way generations of conservatory students have, have learned Beethoven and Brahms. And so there's that kind of classical mentality, which 
yeah, I think can sort of overcome any art form. And it's tricky, you know, because I think the the fires of invention are alive in every genre all the time, and they remain alive in, in quote-unquote classical music as well. And so the kind of seduction of the past, for me as a critic and also just as a listener, is something to be you know, it's inescapable. And I love all the music of the past. But for me, it's also something to be resisted, you know, because you you sort of have to pay attention to what's going on now. And, you know, there is in, in every genre sort of always also that completely new kind of uh, feeling. So it's kind of, I mean, a lot of it has to do with, well, what's getting marketed? You know, what's getting marketed as kind of new music now in pop music? And I think a lot of that is just kind of market driven and not necessarily paying attention to where the real originality is. And so, you know, if something is just being sort of shoved down your throat so kind of relentlessly, um, Commercially. I think people will, yeah, people will tend to kind of go back to the past because they have a sort of f- freedom. This is kind of wonderful freedom for like, I don't know, someone who's like 14 years old now, like choosing to become obsessed by by the Beatles, <laughs> you know, and I think there's a joy in that, you know, in just in kind of taking ownership of the past. And I think it can also like open you up to sort of new ideas in the present. Like once you sort of engage with something that just seems from a totally different world, almost irrelevant to your own, when it comes alive and just feels so urgent, then I think that just sort of changes your perspective on the present and opens you up to new possibilities. So so there's there's a real power also in in just disappearing into the past and kind of reemerging on the other side. And a real safety and security too. You know, I mean, I, I found like, yeah, I yeah. would look at popular music today, and I neither listen to nor collect anything today. Nothing. I mean, the, the artist whose contemporary recordings I buy more regularly is uh, Wynton Marsalis. I mean, I, I listen to classical music. Pretty much 90% of my listening is classical music, or 85%. Right. 5% of it yeah. might be jazz, and the other 10% is, is, is Beatles, Stone, Zeppelin, Who, from my pot-smoking South Shore, Long Island youth. You know what I mean? Which were, those, these were our anthems, <laughs> you know what I mean? Who's next and all that kind of right. stuff. But another thing I thought about reading that Dylan article you wrote a while back, and I think about uh, artists of their day, and certainly Dylan is by and large of his day, and thoughtful. And I'm wondering if back then... You wanted people to help you negotiate that new frontier we were in of learning the truth about um, the American government and our political process. And people did that, and they devoured a lot of thought-provoking and political content in music and in films and so forth. And now we're in a place where people have a fatigue from that. And they're like, I I don't want to talk about that. I want love songs. It's almost like your audience is saying, I need my art, my artistic menu, my artistic reality to be easy and simple. Do you feel that way? That's how the audience views it? I don't know. I mean, I think you're right in that just in the marketplace, you know, the 60s and 70s were just a, a really remarkably open moment in terms of the commercial musical marketplace. A lot of voices came in who were n- not being kind of just unexpected voices, unexpected faces being sort of allowed that that space to to speak to a really broad public. You know, if you just look at how Dylan 
how his career developed at, at Columbia. He put out a couple of records and they went nowhere. And, and they just sort of waited around and sort of kind of, they just let him go on making records, even though he was getting very little traction. And then suddenly he became Bob Dylan. Suddenly these, the, this extraordinary phenomenon began. But there was a patience there to sort of sign up an unusual artist and, and sort of let them develop. And I think that that kind of patience is is much less common. You know, the idea that you would sign up an artist, give them some money, and and sort of see what they come up with. You know, I mean, now when an artist gets signed today, like, you know, they're they're already they've often already become super famous. You know, on YouTube, on mm-hmm. on TikTok, you know, they already have the the audience, and and so just kind of carving out the creative space. It's it's more uncommon. But yeah, in the 60s and 70s, it was just remarkable how many albums were made where artists were, were just really exploring, just in terms of themes, not just political themes, but also mm-hmm. just in terms of sounds, you know, the, the kind mm-hmm. of sounds that, that got explored. And yeah, I think maybe going back to the 80s, you know, 80s and 90s, everything became, you know, a bit more kind of, straight and narrow in terms of what was going on. And then, you know, celebrity, the power of celebrity and just how we, we, I mean, the biggest problem I think in any arena is we just pay so much attention to just such a small number of artists and just so many other voices get crowded out. And Mm -hmm. it's just this winner takes all economy that works in culture the way it works in, in mainstream kind of worlds. And frankly, it works in classical music too. You know, we have, we have a few just celebrity artists in classical music who hog up too much attention. (laughs) And, you know, frankly, the repertory, you know, I mean, I think we, we tend to play, you know, a certain number of pieces over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are fantastic pieces, but there's so much more, you know, to be explored in the past and in the present. People don't want to take a chance. Yeah, yeah. Just people only buying tickets when they see just really familiar names, you know, on the on the program. So mm-hmm. it's something to be pushed back against in classical music world, you know, as well as the kind of mainstream arena. It's just been kind of my preoccupation, like from the start of the critic, is just kind of all right. So you know, you know this. Like try something new. Try a contemporary composer, or sort of try kind of. Alexander Zemlinsky, you know, instead mm-hmm. of Mahler, you know, mm-hmm. there just there are other options out there, and it's just mm-hmm. this it's what I get really excited about, you know, because I, I grew up and I and I just dev- first I devoured, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, and Brahms and Dvorak, you know, and then I started discovering more and more, and just the ongoing excitement is always finding new music as well as, of course, kind of interesting new ways to perform the familiar music. But uh, that's just kind of what I try to communicate in my writing is just try something new. Well, the, the thing about Dylan is that uh, I'm always reminded of that line that people had about Olivier in my business. They said, if Olivier came around today, he'd be on a soap opera. They said they weren't quite sure that that really rich flavor of his and that rich quality, that 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 heightened sense of of the polish actor would have a place, uh, or you'd be the villain in Game of Thrones or something like that. When I look at Dylan, I think of him being of his time, and if he came around now, you know, where would he be? Because there's a period of Dylan, and not a lot of albums, but a couple of them, that I just crave as music. You know, Blood on the Tracks, I crave. Desire, I crave. I mean, there's cuts on that thing that I just can listen to again and again and again, and I have the highest amount of appreciation for those. And then there's a lot of it, which is, to me, it's just Dylan sounding 
like Dylan. Yeah, when I discovered Dylan, and it was late, you know, because I had this strange development in terms of my taste where... It was all classical, correct? All classical. Uh, and just all kind of 18th, 19th century classical. I mean, I was just barely in the 20th century. I listened to a little bit of Mahler, a little bit of Sibelius. You know, that was as crazy as I got as a teenager. And then, you know, past the age of 18, I really started moving into the 20th century in classical music, discovering modernism. And then finally starting to listen to first jazz and then rock. But it still t- it took me a few years until I got around to Dylan, you know, because I just sort of dismissed him as this something from a different generation of sort of no interest. And then I was in Berlin in summer 1995, never forget this, staying at a friend's apartment. And he had a few albums, CDs, and I was just sort of looking for stuff to listen to um, while I was working and put on Highway 61 Revisited and almost immediately became obsessed by it. You know, I listened to it once, I listened to it again, I listened to it like you know, 10 more times that day. And after a couple of days, I started to memorize the lyrics, and, you know, I'd become obsessed. But w- when I started sort of looking at Dylan's career, it is the kind of career that you find in classical music. <clears throat> He's always himself, but he goes through phases. He sort of matures. He takes unusual turns. He kind of scandalizes his audience at a certain point. Uh, you know, this kind of the sort of plugging in, the kind of going electric moment disturbs his audience the same way, you know, Schoenberg and Stravinsky disturbed their audiences, you know, or, or late Beethoven for that matter. And it's sort of these sort of ups and downs in terms of his reputation. But at the same time, he's he's always kind of developing. He's always sort of growing as an artist. And and that is unusual, I think, in the pop music arena. It's so hard to sustain, you know, it's not that people lack talent. I think just the marketplace, it's, it's just so difficult to sort of keep your place in the marketplace and the sort of business and the industry mm. while also sort of continuing to develop. Because people want you to keep doing the same thing over and over again, mm. you know, and, and the power of Dylan was to refuse to do the same thing over and over again, mm. to go in new directions and to keep his place. And that just doesn't happen uh, very often. I think there's just an incredible willpower there not to give in and to sort of continue going in his own direction. But yeah, I just think I, we're lucky to be living at the time that this man is alive. You know, he's a completely extraordinary talent um, and just kind of will, like, thousands, for thousands of years, people will still be talking about Bob Dylan. The New Yorker critic Alex Ross If you like conversations with insightful journalists, check out my interview with Alex Ross's colleague, New Yorker editor David Remnick. The magazine is not the magazine if it doesn't have a sense of humor. You're not in business to depress the hell out Mm -hmm. of the reader unremittingly. Mm -hmm. It's like a band having a set list. If you do everything... It's all 16th notes from Manson. It's all in Agata DeVita. Or, or, well, you sound like the Ramones, <laughs> although I've, I've heard of worse things. <laughs> so you want some variation in tone, in voice. And that's your responsibility, you feel. I, I feel all of it's my responsibility. Hear more of my conversation with David Remnick in our archives at heresthething.org. After the break, I talk to Alex Ross about one of the most important composers in the world, Richard Wagner, and the dark specter of his anti-Semitic views. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. 
Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit bartesian.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Alex Ross has been a music critic for three decades. I wanted to know how his line of work has evolved as our access to media has changed. The world has definitely changed. You know, I mean, when I started out in the early 90s, first writing for the New York Times as their most junior, very junior critic, there were just so many more of us. You know, I remember the world premiere of John Corleano's The Ghosts of Versailles at the Met, um, 1992. I mean, I think there were there were 70 or 80 music critics from around the world, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> attending that that performance. You know, I just had so many colleagues from different papers that, that I would see, you know, at concerts. So Leighton Kerner from the Village Voice and Kyle Gann from the Village Voice and people from the Post and the Daily News. And, and you know, the, someone was still writing, Terry Teachout was still writing about classical music for a Time magazine, you know. Uh, so there were just a lot of us, you know. And now, very often when I go to concerts, like, I'm the only critic there or it's just kind of one other one other colleague and that diminishes the power of criticism i think because i think the, the sort of 
critics have power and usefulness as a pack, you mm-hmm. know, because no one wants like a single voice laying down the law uh, in terms of what's good and what's not. Uh, what you want is the conversation, the debate. You know, you want Pauline Kael and, and Andrew Saris yelling at each other, you mm-hmm. know, and for the reader, you kind of triangulate your idea of what's actually going on from I'm sort of reading different critics. And, and, you know, I usually agree with this person on such and such a thing. And so if as the field kind of empties out, we're losing our sort of ability to to really have an impact. But still, you know, we're still here and and there's still a bunch of us here. And I think really critics still have a very big role to play. For me, it's never been about delivering a judgment. You know, was it good or bad? Thumbs up, thumbs down. That's not what it's about. You know, my opinion kind of needs to be somewhere in the review, but it's not paramount. The first thing to do is just sort of convey the texture of, of what happened, something that happened. You're a journalist, an event has taken place in musical form, and you're reporting on it. But to give it context, to sort of show, well, how did this concert compare to sort of a bunch of other sort of Beethoven symphony performances of the past. You know, this new composer, where do they come from? Uh, How do they depart from sort of the given styles of the day? And that, I think, is really useful to the reader, just giving the sense of context and just Mm -hmm. starting a conversation. You know, let's just, let's think about this music and and talk about it. And in classical music, I think there's so many people who are experienced, they go to concerts all the time. They're very knowledgeable, but they don't, they're kind of reluctant to say anything. You know, they're not sure Mm -hmm. of how to articulate, you know, what they've experienced. And, and so for me, I just always feel as though I'm just kind of throwing a phrase out there to, to begin the, the conversation and to filter. You know, I think there's just, we're just being assaulted by so much information and so many just kind of possibilities. And so I'm just here sort of filtering out as best I can and seizing on a few things and, and saying, you know, try this. And I think that's that's a very important role. You know, you can get that in other ways. You can read the Amazon reviews and and sort of have, you know, there are other people out there filtering. But I think kind of, I've been doing this long enough that, you know, I have experience, I have a kind of track record and people kind of know what to expect a little bit when they they read my reviews. Whether whether they agree with me or not, they kind of know where I'm coming from. And I think that is something that you can trust. So I hope we'll still be able to keep doing this, you know, for, for a while longer. But, you know, I, I feel very lucky to be the where I am at The New Yorker and, yeah. and editors who really give me freedom to explore different areas. Many years ago, I was doing a film and I went off on location and just devoured a Scott Berg's biography of Lindbergh. I, I, I read the book in like three nights. Mm. Obviously, there were some things about Lindbergh that he discovered that he was, you know, uh, very disturbed by his uh, his isolationism and his uh, anti-Semitism or what have you. And ironically, the same thing relates to your book about Wagner. Was, for people who don't know, was Wagner known to be white supremacist, anti-Semitic? Was that common knowledge in his day or beyond? Or do people just suspect that for certain because of the company he kept? Oh no! It was very vocal. It was right. it was in print from 1850 on. He wrote an essay in, in 1850, Jewishness in in music. It was actually first published anonymously, but it became known that he was the author. And then almost 20 years later, he republished that essay under his own name. Um, 1869, he was becoming just one of the most famous composers in the world, and he threw his reputation behind this repellent document and did not deviate from that. You know, from till the end of his life. What was he suggesting? 
he had the idea that you know there, of course anti-semitism had had uh, existed you know for centuries for for millennia wagner and this sort of had this religious basis but wagner was moving toward a more racial kind of idea you know it's sort of beyond the idea that that jews could convert and and therefore solve whatever problem was deemed to exist with them. And Wagner was sort of moving toward this idea that, well, there's a problem here that can't be solved because just, you know, Jews are are inherently different from other people. And his thesis in that essay was that you could tell if Jewish people were writing music, you could tell there was something off, there was something inauthentic, something would kind of seep through. They can never master this language. Now, when you, when you write a book, well, let's use the Wagner as an example, uh, I would imagine that the process begins with just a mountain of reading. You're just doing nothing but reading in the beginning. And I was wondering whether there are things that were disqualifying. Are there books you were going to write? Are there biographies you were going to write? And you started to get into it and you go, mm, maybe not. I don't want to write about this guy's life or this woman's life. Yeah. Did you ever have that not happen? Not yet. I mean, Wagner does, not yet. Wagner does test your, your <laughs> there are moments, you know, when sort of, sort of toward the end of the process, I really, I got to the stage where I was talking about Nazi Germany. And it is, it is horrifying, you know, to watch a film like The Eternal Jew, this absolutely disgusting propaganda film that the Goebbels made, uh, demonizing the Jews. And Wagner is quoted uh, right, right there at the beginning of the film as an authority. You know, and this was literally a film that was designed to make people comfortable with the idea of murdering Jews mm-hmm. en masse. Dehumanizing it was, Jews. It was designed yeah. to sort of reduce Jews to a level of just sort of vermin. You know, mm-hmm. literally, people, this, this entity that needed to be exterminated. So that was the function of the film. And there is Wagner being cited as an authority at the beginning of the film, as a, as a great German cultural figure who, who would apparently approve of this undertaking. You know, horrifying. And, you know, you stop and think, well, you know, have I just gone sort of completely taken a wrong turn here? But then, you know, there, there are so many other aspects of of Wagner that that contradict that Nazi image. Uh, like I said, they're very appealing aspects to his personality. You know, uh, he was a clownish kind of human being who just ran around talking all the time, jumping around, uh, was was just sort of overflowing with with ideas and and energies. Wagner was not this kind of cold dogmatic figure. And I think when you look at the fact that Theodor Herzl, the great Zionist, loved Wagner's music, Arthur Schnitzler, W.E.B. Du Bois, the, the great Black civil rights, titanic intellectual figure, uh, absolutely loved Wagner's music. And, and so these figures found something in him. They not only enjoyed it, they found it inspiring to their, their personal projects. And so there's that energy in Wagner which can really be turned in, in any direction. And it can be turned toward evil. It can also be turned toward good. It can be just completely reinvented and, and transplanted to, to a different kind of uh, uh, world entirely. Um, that's what art is. You know, I mean, just art goes out into the world and just kind of is, is subject to whatever people make of it, however people want to use it. Whatever the, the creator intended, uh, something completely different can be made out of it in ways that are sometimes really disturbing. But that's, I think, the fascination of, of it's the mystery of just how art works in the world. Music critic Alex Ross. 
If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Alex Ross talks to us about the amazing artists that have come back from failure and how they did it. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all. Even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney. Make everybody count. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Writer Alex Ross ponders the big questions, including one of the deepest, the nature of art and how much of oneself must the artist put in their work. Yeah, I mean, that's the joy of art, I think, putting on masks and, yes. and, and sort of playing different roles. And yeah, I think we do... And of course, this has always been going on in, in art. You know, artists have always made art about themselves and, right. and sort of used their own experiences. And then the audience kind of, you know, reads into that that work and and it sort of, you know, f- finds the traces of the self that, that the artist put there. You know, but then uh, you also have, it just feels like going back to the beginning of time, you know, whenever what we recognize as art first arose, it was not 
kind of, you know, Jeff, the cave guy acting out, you know, whatever happened to him the previous day, it was him putting on a mask and, yeah. and you know, becoming, fooling everyone to thinking that, that you know, the, the devil was in the cave with them. And that was the thrill of it. And so, yeah, I think there is probably too much of this kind of autobiographical reading of art these days. And, you know, for me, I just love getting lost in a work of art and, and getting lost in this in this other world. And it's somehow particularly thrilling when, you know, I know that the artist has, has sort of disappeared as well. It's not that I'm disappearing into the artist's world. It's that he or she has created this new kind of sphere, which is just something that has never existed before. And, and now we're being, you know, invited into it. I mean, just, you know, look at the world of Schubert's music. You know, we don't know very much about Schubert. He just does not seem to have been a particularly remarkable person in, in a lot of ways. Just no one really remembered very much about Schubert. You know, uh, he just seems to have been this rather mousy guy. He was not brooding and mysterious and, and kind of violent in his temperament, you know. But he created these these worlds. Mm. It, they become infinite. Just kind of, you know, the B-flat major, the final piano sonata, we're we're on this out on this huge landscape, shadowy, beautiful, but also shadowy, and it goes on and on. And and so that's what I love. I think in art is being transported and and following the the artist on some strange journey. Or like you know, Morton Feldman. Morton Feldman was this this hilarious guy who grew up in Queens talked all the time, just kind of just never shut up, dominated every every conversation, just <laughs> funny, you know, but also just kind of a lot, you know, just, just one of these guys, mm-hmm. it was just a lot. And he wrote this music that is almost silent and moves very slowly and and just sort of hovers on the on the edge of silence. Classic. But it's just yeah, it's sort of he knew Rothko and his his music. He was writing what period in the thirties, forties, and fifties? Uh, yeah, sort of really the fifties and sixties mm. was sort of the the peak of his career, fifties, sixties, seventies. He knew Rothko and and his music has I think there's a lot in common. Um, there's the atmosphere. What's a piece of his you his love with Rothko's paintings? There's one called uh, Rothko Chapel, which this is, is an extraordinarily beautiful piece. Yeah, he wrote it for the opening of the Rothko Chapel. And this is performed Houston. by who? A string uh, quartet, or piano, or orchestra, or what? It is uh, a sort of small group of instruments and, and chorus, uh, wordless chorus. And yeah, it's this liminal music. It's sort of music that's just hovering on in a, in, in a fog. But I find it incredibly beautiful. But what's what's fascinating about Feldman as a phenomenon is the music sounds nothing like it's it's it seems to have been created by a completely different person mm. from who he presented himself, yeah. you know, in daily life, and that. Yeah, that kind of division fascinates me. That once he sat down at his desk, he created a world which had nothing to do with his his daily world. Well, my friend put this in a context. He said that you become an artist when your career is over. Now, for some people, there's the embryonic uh, artistic period. And, And remember that most actors and actresses and, and performers of whatever whatever field don't make it. They don't become so commercially successful. Only 5% mm-hmm. or something of the people in my union make a living as actors and the rest it's a part-time uh, endeavor. And he said to me that you might have the beginnings and the, and the scratchings of an artistic career. And then if you make it, then you go off into your career and the artistry stops. And I was devastated when I read that article, and you say, you know, the most Googled 
aspect of Wells's career, the Paul Masson commercials, which we, of course, we, we here <laughs> yeah. in this office, in the studio, I was regaling them with stories about how I would, my friends were in on the gag on the set of the movie who knew this material. We would parody it on the set. So we'd be shooting a movie and they'd say action and I wouldn't say anything. And then the person who was hip to what was going would go, Orson? Orson? And I would go, doesn't he do something? Doesn't he do something? I would murmur in my drunken Orson Welles, doesn't he do something? And everyone would be howling with laughter who was in on the joke. But, I mean, here's Welles, and what you wonder is, not does a career, do all careers have a, a shelf life? Although for most artists, it seems to be that way. Artists who are very skilled, they sell a lot of records, particularly music, because music occupies its own place. But was Wells someone who, he really was frustrated by being misunderstood, the sands of, of, of the business and what audiences wanted were shifting, all of which may be true simultaneously. Or was it really the case that he just was out of ideas? I think, you know, I mean, I have a, a very special kind of relationship with Wells's work. I've just been fascinated by him for, for so long. And I'm just one of these people who, you know, can focus on some sort of fragment of some unfinished project of, of Wells and get really excited about it. And sort of other people just won't see anything there. You know, so I'm, I'm just, I'm just a, a fanatic when it comes to Wells. But what I find so interesting about his career, and I think it's actually a weird similarity to Wagner in this respect, is he was extremely successful, very young. And then, and then there was sort of a series of colossal failures mm-hmm. just by the, by the end of his 20s, you know, he seemed to be washed up, you know, mm-hmm. certainly by the time he was getting into his 30s. And then he, I feel as though he, in that condition of failure, and he didn't enjoy it, it was just endlessly frustrating for him to the end of his career, he made something of that failure. It actually liberated him, I think. And when he started making movies like, you know, Chimes of Midnight and, and Touch of Evil, just very threadbare productions, you know, very little money. And he just, he was able to conjure, you know, something out of almost nothing. I I think if he had sort of continued his, if he continued having a kind of great success, you know, from the start, I feel like that, that might've never happened for him. And the comparison with Wagner is that, you know, Wagner had this massive collapse of his career, 1849, uh, 1850, after he'd Great success uh, having this position as directing the opera in Dresden, one of the leading, you know, young younger German opera composers as, as well as conductors. And then he joined the uprising in Dresden in 1849, was exiled from Germany, didn't come back to Germany for more than 10 years, uh, was just thrown back on almost no resources, living in Zurich. And in that instant, and this is just this kind of stunning thing to look back on, he decides to come up with, with this massive four-part operatic cycle, the biggest opera project ever undertaken. Really kind of one of the biggest works of art in any medium. Yes, you know? yes. And, and with absolutely no prospect of performance. It just the world just, it just, it just seemed inconceivable that this thing would ever come to light. And he kept writing it, you know, amid failure, amid near poverty, and, and pursued it. And somehow got to the point where, you know, 26 years later, it was finished, and he had built his own opera house in which to perform it. There was one tremendous 
stroke of fortune that allowed this to happen, which was uh, King Ludwig II becoming king of Bavaria, who who had a fanatical relationship with Wagner's music and was willing to spend you know huge amounts of money to sort of sort of bring it into being. But even before that happened, you know, Wagner had written most of this, uh, a good part of this cycle, and somehow the total collapse of his career liberated him to do something completely new. But it takes a special kind of talent, I think, to pursue your your vision, you know, amid failure and amid uh, collapse. But also in any of these arts to endure, you know, the white water and the tough times and to come out as an artistic type, but to be Wells, who was an incredibly insightful guy. I'm, under, I'm from the school that's of the belief that it all died for him after Ambersons. Like he realized he was never going to have the control he wanted and the money he wanted to make the movie, to have those two things. The only person I can tell in film history who got the money that he needed and had the economic security he needed to fortify his creative dreams is Spielberg. Spielberg's the person who was given exactly what he wanted and needed to make the movie exactly the way he wanted and made the movie exactly the way he wanted. You know, I mean, it was his production. So The Rest is Noise, which I loved and thought it was a great book. Now, when you write a book like this, I'm assuming that when you write a biography of someone, there is a certain framework of the life of that person and the things that you're able to gather together about that life. But with this other book, you can go in any direction you want to, basically. You can, it's much more free-ranging. Was the book something that you understood what it was from the get-go, or did it change while you and did it meander while you were writing the book? Yeah, well, thanks so much, first of all. And, and yeah, it was, it was quite a journey at that book because I started out with a less ambitious idea. I thought I was going to write a series of essays, essentially, about different 20th century composers and, and sort of showing different aspects of the world of 20th century music, you know, through them. Actually, my original idea was to, I was going to end the book with Bob Dylan, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> that obviously wouldn't have worked at all. It was a whole different topic. No. But, but that, it was going to be that kind of thing. It was going to be a series of portraits. And then as I started sort of going into it, I started becoming much more interested in, in the, just kind of the texture of history itself and what was going on, you know, in sort of America in the 30s, FDR and the New Deal and, and the Depression when, you know, Aaron Copeland was coming to the fore and, and how people's careers intersected with, with the politics, with, with sort of the bigger, you know, social history. You know, obviously, uh, Shostakovich and the Soviet yes, Union yes, is an incredibly yes. dramatic and complex story. You know, because Strauss in, in, in Nazi Germany. Yeah, a very painful, but just, you know, fascinating in terms of how these artists negotiated this treacherous political terrain. Yes. And so the book turned into something more like, a history, decade yes. by decade. It's still, there still are kind of principal figures who, who come right. to the fore in, in different parts of it. And that adjustment took years and years of figuring out how the narrative was going to unfold and figuring out, you know, very painful decisions about who to include and who to leave out. But, uh, you know, and then I just wrote too much. You know, I, the, the initial draft of the book was, was <laughs> twice as long. <laughs> and so then right. I had to cut it. But that was very helpful in terms of refining the material yet more and really figuring out what was the most important kind of moment in each decade that was going to sort of right. advance the, the story. And so it was, it was very difficult, but I think I, it was very, um, I, I was just very lucky, I feel like, at the, at the beginning of a new century to 
to be tackling this material and to discover that people actually wanted to read this story, you know, because at first it seemed like this was not going to be sort of widely kind of popular book. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a runaway bestseller or anything, but it did surprisingly well. And I feel as though people were ready to look back on this century. And it's not just about music. It's about the century itself. Mm -hmm. It's about the political upheavals and how artists who happen to be composers. Yeah, people, I want people to understand that is Wagnerism, not Wagner. Yeah, and just relive this century in a different way. So Wagnerism is your most current book. Are you working on another one now? Do you, can you say what it is or not? I am starting to think about a new book, and actually I have not talked about this in public yet, but the book I want to write next is about the emigres in Los Angeles, the German-speaking emigres in film, in music, great, great. Uh, in literature, this incredible convocation of... Lubitsch and Fritz Lang and Billy Wilder yeah, yeah. and Thomas Mann and Schoenberg and Korngold. And so that's the, the focus of the next book. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and best of luck, okay? Thank you. Author and critic Alex Ross. I'll leave you with one of Ross's favorite pieces. This is Morton Feldman's Rothko Chapel. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeart. Radio. of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.